Take your Bibles and open them up to the letter of 1 John. Letter of 1 John, it's uh, near the end of the, of the Bible, uh, about uh, th- three, four, five books uh, from the back. Um, so if you're shuffling through your New Testament, you'll, you'll see, um, you'll run into James and then 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and then after uh, 2 Peter, uh, we have 1 John. And so we've been camping out in 1 John uh, for the past few weeks. It looks like we'll be camping out in 1 John probably till uh, sometime in July, um, which is great because there's so much that we can draw from uh, what uh, the Apostle John has to say to us. And we're going to be specifically in uh, chapter 2 today. We're going to be looking at verses uh, uh, 12 through 17. So join me with a word of prayer. God, would you help us to understand what it is that your word says this morning? Would you help us to understand it rightly? And then when we understand it rightly, would you help us to apply it uh, rightly, Lord? So, Lord, do that work in us and, uh, and through us so that you can get great glory in this, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Well, in January of this year, our, uh, for the first time, our family got a dog. Uh, his name is, yeah, some of you are clapping. Um, you might not clap after I'm going to say what I'm going to say here, but he's a, he's a six-month-old golden doodle. His name is Oscar. Um, neither Julie and I had ever had a dog growing up, uh, and so my assumption is that he's a normal six-month-old puppy. Um, he is wild. He is crazy. He is energetic. He is incredibly affectionate. He enjoys hanging around with the kids. He loves to bully our cat, Gloria. Uh, You know, it's my understanding that uh, Oscar is exactly where he needs to be and who he needs to be as a six-month-old puppy. But there's another side to being a six-month-old puppy. Uh, that there are some things that he needs to learn to not love so much. Um, one of Oscar's greatest joys in life is to chew on things. And uh, in particular, one of his joys in life is to chew on things that he is not supposed to chew on. Um, it seems as if the toys that we give him freely to do this sort of activity, he doesn't like as much as the things that he's not supposed to chew on. And, and so uh, he doesn't find his, cho- his toys as pleasurable as things like coffee tables, um, socks, uh, uh, our kids' stuffed animals, shoes, slippers, baseball hats, and, and well-baked goods. Um, there, we, when we were out of town a number of weeks ago, we had uh, Denise uh, watch our house, in particular our dog, and she didn't even get to enjoy some of the muffins that were provided for her because our dog, who at the time was maybe four months or so, but he was already 30-some pounds and could look up over the counter and, and steal a plate of, of muffins. Um, a, a, a few weeks ago, on, when we came home from church on a Wednesday night, we discovered that he had grabbed a bag of cinnamon raisin bagels from our counter and eaten three and a half of them. And so I had to call the vet and ask them what to do after hours. And they said, well, you're going to need to make the dog throw them up because raisins can be toxic to dogs. And so we did that. And 
Um, yeah, and the, the other day we found he must have gotten into one of the kids' coat pockets and found a sucker. He, he tore the wrapper off the sucker and was licking the sucker. We've had to throw away toys. We've had clothes ruined. We've had dishes broken. A couple of us have had blood drawn uh, because of the sharp puppy teeth that, that, they, that they have. And most of this behavior, I am convinced, has less to do with him being a puppy and more with him being a rebel because he does these things more so when we leave him alone, which he doesn't like. We leave the room and he grabs something that he's not supposed to. Um, and so he does these things to, to cause a stir and get attention. Yes, he's a dog, but he has learned to do things that a dog ought not to do. And that is a problem. And much in the same way, however, uh, you and I are somewhere on a spectrum of faith by which we have grown into. We are at various levels and circumstances at life that play a part into who we are as far as mature Christians. Uh, and our author, the Apostle John, now he begins to make somewhat of a transition in his thought in this letter in our passage today by uh, reminding us that we're all on this journey of faith and we're all at different stages of our maturity and yet we must always be pressing on to, to further maturity. And, but we often uh, miss out of uh, moving towards this particular growth because you and I have learned to love things that we ought not to love. Join with me as I read this passage and then we'll look at what Jesus has to say to us this morning. In 1 John, starting in chapter 2, verse 12, John writes this, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions or, or life, depending on translation there, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. As, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we must grow. We must grow. And that's difficult in a world that, that will push and pull us in many different directions. And I believe that the Apostle John gives us two solid truths that will help us keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. And as a result, we will grow. And the first thing is that we must first recognize and move further toward Christian maturity. We must recognize and move further toward Christian maturity. There have, there, 
to be completely honest with you, there have been a few times already in, in this uh, letter of 1 John that I have asked myself, what in the world am I preaching this book for? Because uh, there are some places in this letter that don't really seem to make sense. And to, in order to connect it with everything else, it's very hard to nail down. And verses 12 through 14 is one of those, those sections. And up to this point, John's letter, he has been very clear with us. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, uh, if you remember, we, we learn that we are to know what the gospel is. We are to know uh, that, uh, who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. And when we do that, we can have a, a genuine relationship with God the Father. In chapter 1, verses uh, 3 through uh, chapter 2, verse 2, John told us that we need to know the severity and the seriousness of our sin, and not just our sin as far as actions, but we ought to know and recognize the seriousness of our sinful nature and who we are and understand the goodness of God, not only in His justice, but also in His goodness and, and His grace in pardoning us for those things because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And last week in chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, John noted the, the importance of assurance of forgiveness in our, our lives, that we can know that we've been forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us. But in our section this morning, John lays out these, these uh, series of propositions that seem to be addressing uh, different populations of the people in his church, uh, and he gives specific attributes to them. But the challenge of this then is how to approach this in determining who is John writing to? Why is he addressing them in such a way? And what point does it serve his overall argument through this, this letter and particularly in this section? So that's how we're going to break that down this morning. Let's first look at who is John addressing? Who is John writing to in this, in this section? There are three categories that John writes to. The first one is little children. He writes to uh, young men. And he writes to fathers. Now, when he gives us a list such as this, we're, we're, we're tasked to, to ask the question, is he talking about literal fathers? Is he talking about literal young men? And is he talking literally about children here in their stage of life? Or is he using these terms figuratively for, uh, to categorize people into levels of maturity? And the commentators aren't much help on this because um, a lot of times you get five commentators with six opinions. And so here we are with this, and what seems most logical to me, however, is to see these categories as symbolic in various levels of maturity. And here's why. Let's look in verse 12. It says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, uh, if we label the basic disposition 
of every Christian, if we looked at the, the fundamental aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it would be that uh, uh, their sins are forgiven. The forgiveness of sins is the entry point by which we enter into the life of, of God, and it's by which we enter into a lifestyle of discipleship. The forgiveness of sin is not granted uh, by something that you and I do. It's not merited based on our work. It's not paid for out of our, out of our, uh, out of our pocketbooks. Uh, rather, it was given to us by the free grace of God. And all believers, whether they are seasoned or new, are in this category of little children because all have been granted forgiveness of their sin. Excuse me. And as I've mentioned in previous sermons, John is a very wise pastor who understands the temptations that the people in his church face. And one of those that we tend uh, to face frequently, especially younger believers tend to face frequently, is the tendency to gravitate towards spiritual pride. And John is quick to counteract that by reminding them that, yes, their sins are forgiven, but the ground, the, the root of their forgiveness is not rooted in something about them and who they are. Rather, their forgiveness is based on Jesus Christ. Look again in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. So as hard as it is... We must understand that our salvation and our forgiveness of sins has less to do with us personally and more to do with the glory of Jesus Christ. We are saved chiefly in order for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, that it would be praised, and that it would be glorified in His people. But not only are these so-called little children fundamentally labeled because of the forgiveness that's been granted, but also they've been marked by a relationship with God. Look with me in verse 13. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. So whereas previously before coming to know Jesus Christ and what He's done, you and I are enemies of God. We're at odds with Him. But now that we have come to know Jesus Christ personally and that we've followed Him in faith, not only are we just amicable with God anymore, but rather uh, we are His children and as, as children of the living God, we are privileged with knowing Him as Father. So we can go to Him when we face trouble and that He can provide shelter for us and, and that He will fight for us. We can trust Him as He guides us through uh, and, and helps us navigate through life. In every way, a basic disposition of a young believer, and for any believer for that matter, is not only forgiveness, 
but also a relationship. But it shouldn't end there. Unfortunately, for many, it still does. If children in a family did not grow, were not maturing, we would have reason to suspect that something may be off. In the same way, if we pay attention to Christ's call on our lives, we should not remain as little children. We must grow. And John says that as we grow, we must become more like what he says here, like young men. Because youth is associated with strength, and it's associated with energy, and it's associated with vitality. And those who have rightly gone beyond the, the basic tenets of Christianity, of being a little child, their spiritual lives now are marked by engaging in spiritual war. Warfare. Look with me in verse 13. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now look with me down in verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And again, you have overcome the evil one. And so when we, when we put this together now, we have a, a picture of someone who has been reading God's Word, who has been applying God's Word to their lives, who has been strengthened by it, who is living it out and is in deep in the trenches of warfare against Satan. Look in the last part of verse 14. In the last part of verse 14, you have overcome the evil one. Now, it's true that the war has already been won. At Christ's advent, in His coming as a, as, as a baby, in His incarnation, and through His death and resurrection, Christ finally and fully defeated the works of the devil. But yet, those who are in this stage of Christian maturity, realize that there are still many battles that are be fought. Many battles that, that, that come and go, and people that are, that are in this spot yet that, that might not be quite seasoned, uh, they are still in a good spot. They know what it's like to lose some battles, and they know what it's like to see some victories. And these are people who are fighting the good fight. They're continuing to learn about themselves. They're continuing to, to learn about the world around them. And they are growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, it should not end there either. John caps these three categories off by writing to a group that he calls fathers. And we would do well to call them uh, seasoned saints. I think that's a good word to use, good, good words to use. These are people who are still little children. Their, their, their sins are forgiven. Uh, they've, they've been to uh, many spiritual battles. They, they've, they've seen many uh, uh, battlefields in that sort of way. But because they've lived life, they've had experiences because they've, they've grown greatly in the Lord, that, that nothing really seems to shake them as it used to. 
they have uh, abided themselves so completely in God. They have seen uh, the, the resource that God is and who He is and how He has helped them through time and time again that people who are little children or young men would see these people as valuable resources to tap into because of their immense wisdom as well as their experience. So we've looked at, at the question of, of who John is speaking to, and it should rightly lead us to the question of, of why is he uh, addressing these people? Is he just using them as descriptions in order to show how everybody uh, plays a different part within the role of the church, or is he, uh, is he doing this to cause demographic uh, factions within the church? I don't think it's any of those. It seems reasonable to me to conclude that John is using these descriptors uh, as a way of inducing in us a drive to become better than who we are, a drive in us to get out of our spiritual complacency. We're all in these different places in the spectrum, and there are some people who are newer to the faith that have become mature very, very quickly. But yet there are, on the other side of that, many people who have been followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps for decades, that still have not seemed to get past the description of little children. <clears throat> and here, John is giving us an encouragement. He is saying that we cannot, regardless of where we are in the faith, spiritually sit down and say, I'm finally, I finally arrived. I'm finally here where I need to be. We must grow. And, and, and the thing that we also must see is that you and I are very poor judges of ourselves. We don't do real well with self-reflection. And there are things that we're completely blind to. Others, uh, th well, this is why the body of Christ is so important for community. Because others can see things about us that we cannot see about ourselves. And that's a good thing. The question is, is are you willing to grow? Do you see yourself at a landing place? Or do you see yourself on the runway ready to take off? Are you seeking after others to provide ins insight for you? And John is pressing this because we live in a world that quite frankly, is very alluring. We are constantly surrounded with. And we are constantly bombarded by the call to love things that God does not love. We are constantly be temp being tempted to think in ways that God does not desire for us to think. We are constantly being tempted to live in ways that God does not desire for us to live. We must grow. Because in, in, in verses 15 through 17, John gives us a stern warning. 
We must reject worldliness. And we must embrace and love holiness. That's our second point. Reject worldliness and love holiness. You know, in various parts of, of this letter, the Apostle John is urging this ailing and, and fractured church to be unified with the rallying call of love. In our passage last week, John was adamant by saying that unless we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't have God. We need to be loving one another. He repeats the sentiment in chapter 3, verse 15, and in in chapter 4, verse 8, he marks our love as a reflection as to how we think about God. In other words, how we love other people is a good description of how we view God. In fact, he says, anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. And so one of the chief attributes that that John uh, points to in, in God is one of love. Now you can take this, you can take God's love too far, but as a general statement, you could say that God is characterized by his abundant love. Now in verse 15, however, in our text, John writes of a different kind of love. And it is it is not a love that we are called to emulate. In fact, we could say that starting in verse 15, we see a clear example of the kind of love that God hates. Let's look in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the the desires of the eyes, and the pride of possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, we must be careful to define our terms here. John is not saying that we are to refrain from loving the physical world. We are not to uh, dislike or disrespect uh, the physical earth. Rather, we see it as a creation from God in which we are tasked to have loving and, and careful stewardship of Uh, In fact, having an attitude which looks at created matter as evil, thus requiring hatred of it, was one of the chief doctrines by which John was trying to counter in the false teachings that had ravaged his church. Rather, when John tells us to not love the world or the things in it, he is referring to those elements of our lives, of our culture, perhaps of our behaviors, our attitudes, and entertainments that are utterly opposed to God. And this is where, again, we must ground ourselves with the biblical understanding 
of the seriousness and the, the, the depth of our human depravity and sin. The reason that we don't take sin and our sinfulness seriously enough is because we are too in love with the world. We can't take sin seriously when we're programming the D- our DVRs anxiously waiting for when the next season of Game of Thrones starts. We cannot take sin seriously when the music that we enjoy objectifies and, and uh, glamorizes the abuse of women. We cannot take sin seriously when our children are vying for our attention, but we don't even realize it because we cannot put the smartphone down. We cannot take sin seriously when we chastise people for their own sin and their own struggles, but we are completely blind or completely in denial of the things that we struggle with. We do not take sin seriously when we use the good God-given things in life and we use them improperly or without an attitude of thankfulness. Friends, the bottom line here is we don't take sin seriously or else we would make major changes in our lives. Our priorities would change. Our scheduling would change. Our choices of entertainment would change. Our spending habits would change. Because you see, sin is entirely seductive and alluring. If it wasn't, you wouldn't struggle with it. Scripture tells us over and over again that without a work of grace in our lives, we, uh, our natural condition is only being in bondage to sin. And if we love what God hates, sin will take us hostage. On August 23rd, 1973, Jan Eric Olson attempted a bank robbery in the Kreditbanken Bank in Stockholm, Sweden. And during this robbery attempt, he took four employees of the bank hostage. And during this, the negotiations of the hostage crisis, uh, Olsen was able to secure the release of his friend, Clark Olafsson, from prison in order to assist him in the hostage crisis and assist him in the treatment of the hostages, which included storing the four hostages in the bank vaults and torturing them with nooses and dynamite for six days. During those six days, Olsen was actually able to get the prime minister of Sweden on the phone. And 
in that conversation, he told them his demands and his willingness and his readiness to kill the hostages. And in order to use a little bit of leverage in his argument, Olson put one of the hostages, whose name was Kristen Enmark, on the phone. And you would think that someone that was in such a situation, when they got on the phone, they would be absolutely desperate. They'd be pleading for their life, just do whatever he tells you, just keep me alive. But rather, when Enmark got on the phone, her voice was very gentle but firm, and she said to the prime minister, I am very disappointed in you. I think you are sitting here playing with our lives. So despite Olson's threats to kill her, Enmark decided that she had felt safer with the bad guy than with the police. In fact, she wasn't the only one. Other hostages actually resisted rescue attempts and later refused to testify against their captor. And a number of them actually raised money for his defense. This particular case sheds light on a peculiar psychological disorder uh, named after this incident called Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome is a condition uh, which causes hostages to develop a psychological alliance with their captors as a survival strategy. These feelings, which result uh, from a bond formed between the captor and the captives uh, during an intimate time spent together, are generally con uh, considered irrational, of course it is, in light of the danger that, uh, that they are at risk under. Generally speaking, Stockholm Syndrome consists of what they call strong emotional ties that develop between two persons where one person intermittently harasses, beats, threatens, abuses, or intimidates the other. The FBI, catch this, the FBI hostage barricade database system shows that roughly 8% of people who are victims of hostage situations show some evidence of Stockholm Syndrome. 8%. Friends, we live in a world that is utterly opposed to God, His Word, and His ways. If we are not growing spiritually, if we are neglecting a closer walk with Christ in our faith, if we are not becoming more mature, you and I are in danger of suffering from spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. We become sympathetic toward worldliness. Our appetites change. And we will even justify the necessity and the goodness of those things that are utterly opposed to God. Sin does deceive us. And it captivates us. Get that word, captive. Captivates us. But in verses 16 through 17, John provides 
two solid reasons by which we ought to reject worldliness and the worldly system that we're surrounded with. Let's first look in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. So why should you and I strive to live counterculturally? Because the worldly system is not from God. It is not from God. In James chapter 1, verse 17, James write that, writes this, Every good and perfect gift is from, the, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, everything good, everything pure, everything noble, everything worth pursuing is from God. Everything good is from God. And James quantifies that by pointing to God as the source of goodness. He is the Father of lights, and He does not change. So if you want to see what's, what's evil, what is wrong, look at what is not coming from the Father of lights. The second reason is found in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. So why should you and I not buy a mutual fund that is rooted in worldliness of life? It's because it's, it's not going to burn up one day. It's not going to last. It's temporary. And though it won't last, here's the thing, it will be used against you one day in judgment if you cling to it. But one thing that won't be used against us is the one hope for world lovers like you and like me. Look at the last part of verse 17. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the hope here is not that we can just Get ourselves together. Clean ourselves up. And do everything that we can to do exactly what God is telling us to do. We can't. You and I, we don't have the power. We don't have the ability to do these kinds of things. And, and, and we couldn't do it right even if we tried. The hope here is doing the will of God. So we have to ask the question, what is the will of God? Is it something that I can just, some action that I can do, some work that I can do? And John would, John would emphatically tell us, no, it is not. He would refer us back to his gospel in chapter 6, verse 40, where Jesus says this, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So friends, the hope for world lovers, those that are suffering from spiritual Stockholm Syndrome, the only hope for us is Jesus. Looking to Him, clinging to Him, forsaking all those other things. 
God's will is fulfilled when we turn from those things and we look to Christ. And when we look to Christ, our Stockholm Syndrome is cured. When we can embrace then a different way of living because of Christ, one that loves what God loves, one that rejects what He rejects at any cost, but with joy. And in return, John promises eternal life based on what Jesus did for us. My dog, Oscar, has an awfully long way to go in growing up. But he'll get there. Hopefully. Parenthetical. You and I are also at various stages in our maturity, and we are constantly needing. It's not just a good thing. We need to grow, and that growth is tough. We face a world that's constantly tempting us to stray, but when we fix our eyes, On the risen Lord, He will give us the grace that we need to reject what we need to reject, love what we ought to love, growth where we need to grow. Let's keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, Lord, this is... This is tough stuff, Lord, because we live in a world where everywhere we turn, we're enticed to walk away from you. Lord, it doesn't help that even though we're redeemed, we still have this sin inside of us that finds pleasure in those things that you don't. And so, Father, my prayer for me and all of us, God, is that you would help us to redirect our attention and our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give us the grace to do that. And through that, Lord, help us to love what is pure, to love what is honoring, to love what is noble, to love what is good, to love all things that come from you and to use them responsibly to give glory to you and help us to perhaps cut off those parts of our lives that aren't pleasing. And would you use us as a community of Christ to come together and be vulnerable with each other and, and say to a friend, friend, I'm really struggling in this. Can you help me? Lord, would you do that? Would you work in us in that sort of way? And it's in Christ's name that I ask this. Amen. Well, let's rise and let's, continue, and let's uh, close by responding to the Lord in song.